This morning, I want to look at uh, Psalm 62 together. So if you'll turn there in your Bibles. We've just sung it. Alan prayed it. And now we're going to read it and preach it and listen to it. Psalm 62. And let's pray before we open God's Word together this morning. Our Father, it is our great desire this morning to give you praise. Above all else, we want our minds fixed upon you in the person of your Son and by the power of the Spirit. So we pray that even as we hear this word read and as we hear it preached, that you would be given glory, that you would be given praise by us as your servants, that you would search us and know us. That we would find that you are, as you are searching us, we are coming to know you more fully. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Psalm 62. This is the holy and errant word of God. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken. Twice have I heard this. That power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love for you will render to a man according to his work. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. I wrestled for a few days a couple weeks ago when I was planning out the worship calendar, and uh, we aren't quite hitting Easter yet, and knowing that we would be in one service this morning, what to preach, and and then I was doing a home visitation uh, a couple weeks ago with one of our elders, Tim McCormick, and our pastoral intern, uh, Josh Dimler. And we were visiting uh, one of you, uh, one of the members of our congregation who has been struck with just infirmity after infirmity and, and has been unable to, to leave the house and to come here and to worship with us on Sunday mornings. And so we went to go and to pray, and to listen, and to serve the Lord's table. 
And as I listened, my mind kept running to Psalm 62 as I listened to this individual talk. And, and uh, we then read this psalm together, and then we took the Lord's table together. And as I drove home that night, I thought, this is a good passage to, to preach on a morning like this, because as a pastor, there are few realities that have become more apparent to me over the course of being a pastor than the fact that everyone experiences trials. And everyone needs to know where their refuge is. So I thought we would look at that this morning. It may come as a surprise to some of you that even the most put-together people in this room that appear to have lives that are put together in every way, that they have trials, that they have suffering, that there is pain. And when we take the Lord's table here on Sunday mornings once a month uh, after I have broken the bread and and the bread goes out and the elders bring it out to you as a congregation and I'm standing up there, I allow my eyes to kind of scan the room. And as I'm going through the room, I'm looking at each of you and thinking through different trials that I know are in your lives, different sufferings, different sins that you're wrestling with, different pains that you're enduring and praying a quick prayer. And can do that with the vast majority of you, because everyone is experiencing trial. Everyone is going through suffering. Everyone has pains. It's just reality. Trials are very real. And one of the reasons that I love this psalm is because in it, David, that great man of God, that man after God's own heart, the, a man that we will point other people to and say, be like David. He's very open and honest here about his trials. He lays it out there for us to see and to examine. And then he instructs us from it. And he has quite a lesson to teach. I think a lesson that we can all learn and a lesson that all of us can be continually reminded of. So I want to look at that this morning. First, the reality of trials. Second, the rest that we can find in this reality in God and then finally, the foundation of this rest. And then finally, I want to give some just instructions from David's little psalm here, ways that he informs us of how to find this rest and how to experience this rest as we are in the midst of trials. So in verses 1 through 4, David gives us a very personal account of his trial. He begins with a declaration in verses 1 and 2, For God alone my soul waits in silence, from Him comes my salvation. David is waiting. My soul waits in silence. He's just waiting. Uh, this week, I went to Grand Traverse Pie Company because it was pie day this week. So about 4.30, I left here and I drove down to Grand River and Hagedorn and I was on the phone, and so I walked around, I walked through the front door, and as I walked through the front door on my phone, I was talking to someone, and, and as I was trying to adjust my eyes to the new light in there, I was just overwhelmed because there was a sea of people. And then this woman that was standing there by the door, she said, the back of the line is there. <laughs> she 
point at her bony finger. <laughs> and, uh, and I followed that bony finger, and it was a line that snaked all the way through the restaurant. I thought, this is going to take 20 minutes. So I left. And I went home, and I picked up my two kids, and we drove 20 minutes to another Grand Traverse Pie Company. Because I'm not going to wait. I don't like to wait. It's hard to wait. It is one of the hardest things in life. And it's even harder when we're in the midst of trials. David is waiting, and he's waiting in the midst of trial. There's no small trial that he is enduring here. He needs salvation. He needs deliverance. He needs a place of refuge because he's being attacked. He's being attacked by people. People that are saying things about him. This isn't in the abstract. This isn't just a trial as he's talking about trial in the abstract. This is very personal. He's being attacked. And every trial is personal. It just is. There are maybe some of the most personal and real things in this life. These enemies, they are spreading lies about him. They are playing the game of saying nice things to his face, but in their heart they think other things, and then behind his back they are spreading lies about him. It is one of the worst kind of trials that you can face in this life, the trial of betrayal. It is what Adam did in the garden, it is what Judas did to Christ. And these enemies betraying David, they know that he is weak, they know that he's frail, and he is feeling battered, and so their attacks have become all the more relentless. They know he's weak, they know he's frail, so they just keep after him. He says that he is like a leaning wall, he's a tottering fence. Like someone could just come up and just tap him and he would fall over. Have you felt like that in the midst of trials? All it would take, Lord, is just one more little thing. And I'll crash. And David confesses that this is how he feels. In a distorted kind of way, I find comfort in that. Here is David, a man after God's own heart, a man that loves the Lord with all that he is, and he says he feels like a tottering fence, like, a, like he's just going to crash, just one more thing, and that, that's all it would take. Haven't you been there, or maybe you are there? I know you've been there, or you are there, or you shall be there someday. It's just true. Because all of us are fallen beings living in this flesh, living in a fallen world with an adversary that's prowling around. And so you've either experienced it, you are experienced it, or you shall experience it. But David doesn't leave it there. He's in the midst of these trials, uh, this severe trial, and all of life seems to be clouded by this dark shadow of this trial, but but he doesn't just leave it there, just just waiting for this deliverance, this feeling of interminable, never-happening deliverance. He doesn't just note the reality of trials. He speaks about the fact that we can have rest in the midst of them. 
Rest can be had in the midst of these trials. He says, for God alone my soul waits in silence. He says it again in verse 5, for God alone, O my soul, waits in silence, for my hope is from Him. He's like a leaning wall. He's like a tottering fence. This, this, This trial is very real. He's not Pollyannish about it. He's not a stoic just trying to dismiss it. He's saying, look, this is real. It's heavy. It's a burden. It's a cloud that's over my life. And yet he says, I found rest in it. I found rest. He rests because he's convinced that God is his help. It's quite a change here in the psalm. Instead of looking at life through the trial, he's now looking at this trial through a life that's lived in God. This trial isn't diminished, it didn't disappear, but his anxieties diminished. So much so that he says he waits in silence. He's found a kind of rest. There's a storm without, but there's a a quiet within. What does he mean? What is it? Does he mean that he's rested in silence in the midst of this trial? Because later in verse 8, he will say that we are to pour out our hearts before God. So how can you pour out your hearts before God and yet also rest in silence. What, what does he mean? My soul waits in silence. Well, David has committed to, a, to submissively and humbly enduring the suffering that has been brought into his life. Submissively and humbly. He, he, he will carry this cross. If you would be my disciple, said Jesus, you must pick up your cross and follow me. Now, now David is waiting for the Lord's deliverance, and he submissively and humbly endures his cross even as he is waiting for it. It doesn't stop him from crying out. No, just the opposite. He does cry out. But, but he's waiting. There's no shame for you and I to hope to be delivered from our trial. There's no shame in you and I crying out to God that we would be delivered from our trial. No, that's actually right and good. It's the right thing to do. But, but David has also submitted himself to the Lord has brought this into his life. It's a submission, not a resignation, a submission. And so he endures it with patience. He rests. Let's be clear about this. It's not as if you and I will always have just kind of this continual peace and never be anxious or worry or feel complaint rise up in our bosom as something happens in our life, some kind of trial comes into it. Our peace will be disturbed, and it should be. They're trials, for goodness sakes. That's what they do. They disturb. So we don't pile on the guilt by being too idealistic. As if when trials come, and they will come, that we are to remain undisturbed by them. We aren't Stoics. But as Calvin said about this passage, we're to aim to be like the sea before a light breeze. There's that light breeze that hits the sea, and there should be little ripples on the water. It shouldn't cause big billows and waves. And that's what we're aimed at. 
So sufferings under the mighty providence of God, we, we discipline ourselves unto and we pray for a growing inner peace. It's not easy, but it's a worthy pursuit. It's something we keep fixing our eyes on. David seems to have learned the secret. He, he's confident in verses 5 through 7. He, he is resolved. And maybe that's too difficult a place for us to be in this morning. But it's something to aim at. Something to labor towards. Look at how David does this. This is our third point. The foundation of this rest is looking to the promises of the Lord. He finds rest in the midst of his trial by looking to the promises of of the Lord. Haven't you found that there are certain people that are in the midst of a trial and it just seems like they have a, a peace that other people can't find or they aren't busy as other people are busy. There's just kind of a, there's just a restfulness about them. Well, David has this. He, he's like a, a ship that is at anchor. That anchor is down. The, ste- the sea is 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 in the midst of a storm, and those waves are trying to dash him, and and yet he he remains fixed because the anchor of his soul is in the promises of God. And it steadies him. It gives him some resolve, some firmness. gives him a strong foundation. Think of this uh, toy that I had when I was a kid. I kept it for my kids. They played with it. We'll probably keep it for grandkids. It's a, it's a Fisher-Price castle, and this castle has a flag on the top of it, and that flag is attached to a spring. And I just remember as a kid, I would just whack that thing as hard as I could, and that, that flag would just fall over, and it would bounce, and then it would just pop right back up. Why? Because, because it was fixed to the castle. It had a firm foundation in the entire castle. You and I, we cement our souls in the promises of God, which are cemented in the very character of God. We may totter. We may wave a little bit. But we can't be knocked over. We can't be dashed. It steadies us. He says, God is my salvation, my rock, my fortress. God's promised to be that to you, dear Christian. That's not an idle promise. He's promised that. No matter the adversary, whether it's discouragement or depression or lies or enemies attacking you or it is poverty or it is sickness, It doesn't matter. Sin, Satan, hell, it doesn't matter. He's promised to be your refuge. He's promised to be your fortress. He's promised to be your strong tower and your salvation, your deliverer. For God alone my soul waits in silence. He only is my rock and my salvation and my fortress David says in verse 8, I shall not be shaken. I shall not. And when his eyes move from his adversaries to God and his promises, his view changes. Look at verses 5 and 6. He almost quotes verbatim verses 1 and 2. 
It's almost verbatim, but there's a little change. There's a, there's a little exception. In verse 2, he says, He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Now, in verse 6, after he has contemplated the promises of God and he's fixed his mind on the promises of God, he says this, I shall not be shaken. Greatly has gone. Because he's reminded himself of who God is and who God is to him and what God has promised. And God is not a liar. And he fulfills all of his promises to his people. All of them. And this God is our God. You know, Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9, he will tell his readers of his own trials. And he says this, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Notice, Paul has a very real view of suffering as well. This is reality. He's saying, look, we were so pressed in Asia when we were ministering there that we despaired of life itself. No Pollyannish view here. No Stoic view here. And you see that in every saint in the Scriptures, every single godly man and woman experiences trial. It's just reality. But then notice what Paul does as well. He says, far beyond our ability to endure so that we despised of life itself, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul feels crushed. Feels like he's going to be broken and he's going to be dashed and he's going to be knocked over. And then he says, but all of this happened so that we might trust in God who raises from the dead. He's trusting in the promises of God. He finds an anchor in the promises of God. Notice what David says he is trusting in. He says, not just God. So it is true for Paul as well, not just God, but he says in God alone. You can't see it in the English, but in the Hebrew, it is very clear. There's a word that occurs multiple times in verse 1, in verse 2, in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 6, and verse 9. Six times in the psalm, and it actually begins each verse. It's the same word. But it's a word that's hard to translate into English, so it will be different ways in your Bibles. Uh, I think the ESV tries to do it in two ways. It will say only or alone. And it works for most of them except in verse 9. There's one commentator uh, I was reading that tried to use the word yes, which I think conveys some of the sense as well. But that a word alone or only is, is what is repeated over and over here. Verse 1, for God alone. My soul waits in silence. Verse 2, he only is my rock and my fortress. Verse 5, for God alone. Verse 6, he only is my rock and my salvation. David is emphasizing over and over throughout the psalm that not only are we to rest in God, but we're to rest in him alone. Our ultimate rest is in him alone in the midst of our trial. I 
think uh, if we were to talk about this as Christians, we would all say, look, my, my rest is in God. My hope is in God. My strength is in God. Uh, no Christian would deny that. It's that tricky word alone or only that causes problems for us. Do we believe that He is sufficient for all things or only for some things? Do we believe that He is adequate at all times or only some of the time? David has no hesitations here. He's not hedging his bets. He doesn't have a backup or a reserve. He is all in on God. He has pushed the chips forward and he says, God alone is my help. God alone is my refuge. He alone is my salvation. He alone is my fortress. And that word alone and not having alone is a universe apart indifference. It's dangerous to do otherwise, to trust in other things as well. It's, it's like a man who attempts to, to stand on firm ground, and there is water over here, and he thinks, you know what, I think I'll try and stand on both. And he's fine as long as he has all the weight on the foot that's on the solid ground, but as soon as he starts to put any trust in that foot that is on the water, what happens? He, he gives in to it, and he is going to immediately be brought down, and he's going to sink below the surface. This is Christ's point in Matthew when he says that God cannot serve both money and God. You can't have two masters. And David is making that point here in verse 10. He's saying you can't put your hope in riches. He'll say the same thing in verse 9 about you can't put your hope in people because they're but a breath. You can only ultimately place your hope in God. Your rest is found in God. And he alone. Now, how does David get to this point? There are three things in this text that I think we can learn about David's approach. You notice first that he speaks to himself. So you speak to yourself. As you seek to rest in silence in the midst of trials, you speak to yourself. You preach to yourself who God is and what He has promised. Look at this in verse 1. He says, David says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. And that reminder that allows him to say, he only is my rock and my salvation and my fortress, I shall not be greatly shaken. But now notice in verse 5, after he makes the change, he directs this truth at his soul, his very own person. He, he seeks to convince himself. And he says, for God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. He's talking to himself. And, and that approach matters. It moves him from saying in verse 2, I shall not be greatly shaken, to then saying in verse 6, I shall not be shaken. So you speak to yourself. You preach to yourself the promises of God. You talk to yourself. Other people will think you're crazy, but it's one of the sanest things you can do. Is you keep telling yourself the promises of God over and over. 
And notice that he piles it up here. He piles up one expression upon another. He doesn't just say, God is my rock. That, that's, that's enough. I, I've said, God is my rock. Now I can move on and I'll trust and I'll rest in God. No, that's not enough for weak and frail people like you and I. So he piles it up one upon another to remind himself of who God is and what God has promised to be to us. Term after term, thing after thing, he just speaks to himself. He just preaches to himself. But you don't leave it there. Second thing is that you also must speak to God. Even as you preach to yourself, you pray to God. I, loved, uh, I love verse 8. It's one of my favorite verses in all the scriptures. It says, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts before him, for God is a refuge for us. Selah. Trust Him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts before Him. Pray to Him. Speak to Him. They say, your heart is filled to the brim. He knows it. He's experienced it. Your, your heart is filled to the brim with all of those fears and all of those anxieties and all of those worries and all of those pains that you have in the midst of the trial. And it's like a... a a bucket that is sloshing around. Your heart is like a bucket sloshing around with all those things in it. And David's saying, just pour it out at the feet of the Lord. Just pour it out. Why? Because he's worth pouring it out too. Because he is a refuge. It's odd, isn't it, that, that you and I, well, may I speak for myself, for me, maybe true for you, when you're in the midst of trials and you're in the midst of tribulations, it's often when we find it the hardest to be upon our knees. And there can be a discouragement and there can even be a despondency. And yet those are often brought into our lives to bring us to the very conclusion that we are utterly dependent upon God so that we will be people that pour out our hearts before Him. And David's saying, look, you're there, pour it out. Let it loose. Tell God all your pains, all your trials, all your sufferings, all your discouragements. He can handle it. And He wants to hear it. So we recognize our utter dependence upon Him. Trust in Him, David says. Trust in Him at all times, when things are going well, and especially when they are hard. At all times. Why? Because He's a refuge for us. He is. He's a fortress. He's a mighty rock. He's our salvation and our glory. And even those words, they just fall short of 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 extolling all of His virtues and His very person and, and what He is to us. They just fall short. Piling up term after term after term just so you and I can get a better picture of this multifaceted diamond that we have and that we get to hide under. And that we get to rest in. And that we are secured by. He's worthy of all our trust. He only and He alone. 
I think about people. Many of us are blessed with good friends or a good spouse or a good parent. And we thank God for that. But people are going to fail us. They're going to fail us in large ways and they're going to fail us in small ways. And they're like a breath. Money's going to run out. Not always there. Your mind that you rely on begins to disappear when you get older. Your strength that you lean on doesn't last forever. Your good looks doesn't last. But He is good at all times and worthy of our trust at all times. He's always a refuge for His people. Not maybe, not can be, but is. So David says, you pour out your heart to him. I love that verse 8. Uh, it, it ends with that, that word selah, which nobody exactly knows what selah means. Uh, almost all scholars believe it was some kind of musical instruction. So as they sang these psalms, these psalms were the the hymn book of the people of God, that as they sang these psalms, that the Selahs were there to give a little musical break. And you were to pause. And you were to rest. And if that is true, I think this is the most divinely ordained Selah in all the psalms. Pour out your hearts before Him, O people. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Imagine singing that. And then there's just quiet. You just rest. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will. Not I may, I will. And our third and final encouragement, speak to self, speak to God, and finally surrender yourself to His providence. Nothing will grant you more help in the midst of trial than surrendering yourself to God's providence. You look at verses 11 and 12. And David there says, Once God has spoken twice, I have heard this. That's a way of saying this is true. It's, it's much like Jesus when he says, Truly, truly, or verily, verily, you can take this to the bank. This is an ironclad guarantee. Well, what is that, David? What? This. That power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. This occurrence in your life, this trial, this suffering, whatever it is, it's appointed by and it's governed by God who has all power, who has all might, and all steadfast love. His power, His might. God said to Abraham when he met with him, he said, I am God Almighty. It defines him. There's nothing that is outside of his control. There is nothing that occurs that he doesn't ordain. There is nothing that is too big for him. He's Almighty God, the God of all power. But he's more than that. He's also the God who owns steadfast love. 
And that Hebrew word love there, that steadfast love, we, we try and tease it out because there's, there's no English word here either. But it's a Hebrew word hesed or covenant love, faithful love, steadfast love, love that continues to pursue his people. That is unfailing. That is undying. That is eternal. That, that never diminishes even a little. But it's steadfast, continual, searching, active. Love of commitment. And I ask you, what better combination could there be? I really want you to think about it. What better combination could there be? A God who has all power and a God who has covenant-keeping love. What would you substitute? And the answer has to be nothing. He has all power, so nothing can outflank him. Nothing can undermine him. Nothing can kick him off the throne. But if he only had power, it would be, it would be scary. It would be worse than that. It would be awful. But he also has love. Love unlike you and I, with our little brains, can comprehend covenant-keeping love, steadfast love. But if he only had that love, but he didn't have power, it would be inconsequential. What would it matter that he has love? But he has all power, and he has all love. And this is the God of providence that ordains all things in this life. The God who has all power and is aimed at you with all of his covenant-keeping love. What better God could there be? What more could we ask for? What greater rest could we find? I don't know why he appoints some things to occur, what their purpose is. I don't I don't know all his purposes, but I do know that he has purpose in every single thing. I do know that. Because he has all love. And I know that nothing that occurs in my life is by accident because he has all power. I know that. So there is an embracing of providence. There's a resting in it. And I know that because He is a God of all power and He is a God of all love, that He will sustain me in this and He will lead me through this by His powerful love. David understood this. Nothing Nothing will keep us more or provide greater strength in the moment than persuading ourselves of the truth that we are in the hands of a God who has all power and all love. And He exercises both for us. 
And it allows you and I to surrender ourselves to his providence. And serenity always follows surrender in the Christian life. But to do so, our faith needs to lay hold of both. His power and his love. And, and like two wings... That's how I see it. They're like two wings as power and as love. And, and as we grab a hold of them by faith, they just kind of lift us up above the muck and the mire of the trial. And they set our eyes on glory. And it grants us rest. This is what allows Joseph to find rest, though his brothers sell him into slavery and Potiphar and his wife lie about him. And he's put in a dungeon and and his brothers come to him and, and he can say to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. It's what allows Paul to say that he is content in all circumstances. Even after we read what he went through in Asia. It's what allows Jesus in his humanity to say to the Father, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Resting in this God of all power and all love. This doesn't mean that we don't try to lessen or remove the suffering or trial we're experiencing in this life. We pour out our hearts before Him. But it does mean that we can be confident in the midst of it that this is not for nothing. It has purpose. It has God's purposes. He who has all power will not let anything overcome us. And he who has all love for us will hold us fast. And he will not let us go. He's promised it. He can't lie. So we can wait. We can wait in silence. Paul in Romans 8, he takes this argument to its greatest heights. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. My friends, God is for us. He's for us. And as Paul is pointing out, you need only look to the cross. That he exercises this divine power, this sovereign power that nothing else in the universe can rival. And he exercises it in love. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. He sends his son in his divine power. In an act of of covenant-keeping, hesed, divine love. And so Paul says, we can have hope. We can rest. 
He holds us fast. We're in the palm of His mighty loving hands and none can snatch us out. You can trust Him, dear Christian. In the midst of whatever trial, you can trust Him. And trust Him at all times, O people of God. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are thankful that You are a God of sovereign power. And that You are a God covenant-keeping love. We're thankful that you exercise that sovereign, divine power and might in love by redeeming sinners such as us. Oh, Lord, may we place all of our trust in you. You who are a ready refuge in every time, at all times, for all of eternity. Why would we turn anywhere else? Why would we fret and be anxious? Why would we be discontent? Why would we turn from you? Ah, oh, Lord, draw us more and more to yourself and give us rest under the shadow of your wings. We do pray. In Christ's name, amen.